With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Hell, I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us. The most precious thing, your time. We don't ever want to waste it, and we always do what we do here. We turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the information we need to discern the times that we live in. And to do that, we're going to do something a little bit different on this program. One year ago, it's always good to be retrospective about things. One year ago, by far, the biggest news story in America was Gabby Petito. And when it happened... We had some blowback in the media of why the media was covering the story the way it was covering. And the other part that came out of it was, what about all the other missing persons? Why aren't they getting covered? Why did Gabby get covered and they didn't? Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is she had an online community that really advocated for her. And that's an important part of the story. She had friends in her online community, this van life community, who really kept her name in the news, who got the news coverage and got this mystery, at least as far as we know to this point, somewhat solved and at least found her and let her family have a little bit of peace, although they never got justice. That's part of the story. The other part of the story is how it got covered, why it got covered, why it was so big, and why that story got big and others did not. So we turned to one of our really good friends who's been on this program a couple of times, Molly McCluskey. And she compares and contrasts to a story that she covered of missing women out on the reservations. And she talked about spending an immense amount of time and effort covering this story. And then we get to the part that's pertinent to the Gabby Petito story. She couldn't sell it to hardly anybody. She couldn't get anybody interested in it. And then when Gabby Petito happened, all of a sudden people are interested. And some of the same places that turned her down on that story are all of a sudden very interested in it. It's an interesting look in how media works especially during a frenzy, especially during a viral story, especially during a story that crosses a lot of cultural streams. So Molly McCluskey from last year, last October, during the height of the Gabby Petito story on her tell right now. So let's start with some nomenclature. I'm guilty of it, too. I've done it, too. We talk media and journalism like they're interchangeable terms, but they're really not because we're usually referring to like broadcast media or TV media or a major media outlet like, you know, Washington Post or something like that. That doesn't necessarily dovetail with journalism, and it doesn't really show the diversity in journalism and media we have right now, does it? No, it really doesn't. And, you know, I like to think of the terms media and journalism the way one might associate government and military, right? There is no real such thing as military as a blanket term. We intrinsically know that there's a difference between a naval commander, which is what my father was, um, and a gunny sergeant, and, you know, a marine, and the different types of branches and jobs and ranks. And they're all just, you know, a PIO is going to do a different job than somebody working a battleship. I mean, they're just all different jobs and different roles. And so, and obviously when you look at government as well, there's state government and federal government and local government and they, everybody just does a different job. And so I am a 
traditionally trained print journalist. I'm not somebody that's going to be on TV very often. I do the occasional radio piece, but I am a writer by trade and I am a features and investigative journalist. So I am not somebody necessarily that responds to breaking news very quickly. I'm not somebody that's banging out a blog post as you know, a big story is developing and you're trying to get it out in 10 minutes before the competitor does. I'm somebody that will spend days, weeks, months, and in some cases like this case, years on one particular story, really diving into it, trying to get to the nuance. So as I tell my friends, I'm not someone who goes in to cover the war. I'm someone who will go in six months later to cover the rebuilding and the aftermath and the community and how they're responding and recovering from the war. That's the type of investigative and features reporting that I do. And the part of that that's really different that people don't understand is that's a completely different business model than broadcast journalism. The reason they're chasing trends and clicks and breaking news is because that's their business model. You get your funding and you find your outlets in a completely different way, and that does affect how your stories come out and what stories do and do not get covered, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's interesting when you watch broadcast news, if you know how often they refer to a piece of print journalism right? Um, if you're watching MSNBC right. or Fox News, and they're talking about, oh, this story that broke out of this town, they're often referring to original field print reporting, people that are knocking on doors and going and talking to people in their community, which is the type of journalism that I came up with. I was a small town reporter in Skagway, Alaska. Uh, it was, a, you know, I like to joke that it's a town of, you know, 800 people and a couple of goats. There's no goats, but you get the sense. Um, and it was the kind of reporting where, you know, if somebody didn't like your story, they would come knock on your door and have, you know, have you over for tea at their table and tell you why they didn't like your story. And there's a certain type of accountability with that that I feel is not always um, present in all branches of journalism today. And an important waypoint before we get into the national story and how national stories are covered, though, one of the major cultural shifts that I don't know a lot of people really realize is kind of, and it's been a little exaggerated, but the death of local media over the last 20, 25 years, you know, there, there just isn't as much local print media, local, even television media, everything's kind of gone to a national trend in a lot of ways. And that has changed not only journalism and not only media, but it's kind of changed society in a lot of ways. Absolutely. I mean, when you have people reporting on your community from your community, right? It's a different perspective than what we call helicopter journalists, which I've been guilty of myself. Um, I've tried not to do it as a practice, but that's basically when you fly into somewhere, drop in, cover it and leave without a lot of context. Um, when I was a foreign correspondent, I would live in the town that I was covering. I would rent an apartment and I would spend three to six months there and base myself in different places. Because to me, the idea of really being in a place you, you can't trade that for anything you to understand the rhythms and the cultures and the way people you know hang out at the market or talk a certain way and and to really understand it, it adds so much nuance i think you know you and i have talked about this before it's one of the things i really try to include with my reporting is to really give people a sense of the place that this is happening stories don't happen in a vacuum they happen with people and locations and the history of, uh, you know, the context of, of where it happens and why it happens. So when something like the Gabby Patino story 
hits where it's um and it was the family that kind of drove it and then it caught on and then it went viral and then the national outlets grab it when you're talking about helicopter journalism that seems to almost be the model now instead of picking up you know the local guy or you know the network news goes to the local affiliate to get on the ground reporting it seems like this is almost kind of the model of a lot of stories now not just missing person stories but just stories in general it kind of went viral the national outlets grabbed it, and then everybody swoops in. When you're talking helicopter journalism, this is kind of a pretty good example of that, isn't it? Well, I will say a lot of the local outlets um, from Long Island, where Gabby is from originally, and from um, Florida, where they are you know, on the ground trying to find Brian, uh, her fiancé, the local journalists are still on the scene. But yes, there are a lot right. of national reporters going in as well. And you know, that's such an interesting story, because here you have a very young pretty blonde woman who goes missing. There's a lot of really weird aspects of the case. Um, there's obviously the domestic violence and the domestic disturbance issue. There's police accountability. I mean, we know she had that stop in Moab, uh, which is a town I used to live in, by the way, I was a um, intern park ranger at Arches. And so I know that community pretty well. Um, there's the van life you know, movement, which is really part of the community that really rallied to help her um, her remains be found, but also, you know, she's a young woman who lived her life online. And so other people that also lived their lives online were personally invested in this and in a position to amplify. I mean, you and I have talked extensively about our love hate relationships with social media and what the balance is and when we need to take a break, but we're of a certain age that is not a 22 year old, you know, trying to, um, who's finding her way in the world and traveling cross country with a partner that she's had a troubled history with by all accounts. So, you know, it it was primed, I think, to t take off. It had all these different elements in it. And as someone who, you know, in my younger years, A, was in some kind of questionable relationships, but also spent a lot of time driving cross country and kind of living the backpack tenting kind of lifestyle, it, it captivated me as well. But yes, she, as tragic as this is, is one person who got a lot of attention. She is a certain person of a certain privilege who is voted in certain communities, do get a lot of attention. And there were and are a lot of people in Wyoming and in Florida and New York and throughout the U.S. that don't get this kind of attention and vanish without any kind of attention. And it's not because their families aren't looking for them and it's not because their community doesn't love them and it's not because they're not wonderful human beings that deserve to be found. It's because of the way these things are set up um, that they're getting, they're getting ignored, which is really tragic. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Yeah. 
and we're we both have done some editing and we both i'm not a journalist but i because i'm a writer i do some journalist adjacent type stuff we understand how this works and and even the general population picked up on it when you looked at social media of the when the gabby petito story went national and then there was a little bit of a backlash of oh there's all these other missing people it wasn't hours later and the next morning every single outlet had what i we kind of derisively called cut and paste pieces. Every single one of them had, oh, well, there's all these other missing people. This is why I really wanted to talk to you because you've been on that end of it where you've had those stories and you were trying to get them out. How, before we delve into your story of getting those out, though, how much of that is fair criticism? How much of it is just the media environment we in? Is, is it really a pick and choose thing? Because Part of it, too, and I think it's fair to bring it up, is the audience because they are, you know, it's what we're consuming as consumers, too, that they're reacting to, not just the media. Uh, which part of this, how do you parse that out? Who, who, Where's the blame lie there? How do you parse that out? Wow, that's a really big question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. We don't ask easy questions. Sorry. Uh, I was looking for an easy one. You're a pro. You'll be okay. Um, I, I don't feel that I can speak to the entire you know, I, I'm not, you know, I am a white woman of a certain age with a certain amount of privilege. I am not a member of these communities that are kind of struggling to get this attention. So I, I don't feel that I can speak on behalf of them. I can say that I was surprised. First of all, to your question of how much of the criticism is fair, all of it. It is all fair. It is all justified. It should, that criticism should be levied every day at every news outlet all the time it is a hundred percent fair um i believe it was gwen eiffel who said though who coined the phrase the missing white woman syndrome and that's absolutely correct um there is a lot of attention to pretty young damsel in distress we have this uh, collective racism and misogyny around this idea that one type of woman is you know requires protection and if something happens to her it's tragic but those conversations aren't necessarily existing around preventative um you know preventing domestic violence we saw how it was not taken seriously when somebody called in that they had seen brian hitting gabby on the streets of moab and it still wasn't taken seriously by the police that responded i mean there's this if, fetishization around a dead woman. It's how it happens. I mean, that's that's the reality. Of it. And, and as a writer, I know, and you know this, this has a delineated good guy, bad guy in it. With You have the abusive, allegedly, but, you know, let's call it what we're seeing. You have, the, you have an abusive boyfriend and the damsel in distress. That's just a classic story yeah. that's going to take off every time you have it. Part of the story that we want to get into with you the lines aren't that clean and there's not that good, clean, good guy, bad guy. There's just a big wad of mess and missing people. And a lot of these missing person cases, they're more that you don't get those clean cut lines of good guy, bad guy, missing, gone. Do you? Oh goodness. Well, I can really only speak to my experience of doing an investigation into the missing and murdered indigenous people of the Crow tribe of Montana a couple of years ago. So I can't speak at large um, of how and why people go missing. I, that's that's a bigger story sure. that you know I'm not qualified to tackle. And there is no one answer for that, right? People go missing all the time for all sorts of reasons. And it's usually tragic and there's no easy answer. I will say that when I was doing the investigation into this Crow Tribe uh, story, 
I was really focusing on the historical failures of the U.S. government, the policing, um, the BIA in treating these these missing and murdered people. Right. So I didn't necessarily get a little bit too much into how and why. Right. Because those things are complicated and but and they're and they're so different. Right. So if we looked at each story, then, yes, it would be a different story story each time. But if you look at how police fail to take these things seriously, that is a similar story. That is the same story across the board, right? Um, especially in, you know, the fact of the Crow tribe, we had family members, like in many cases of missing indigenous people, but in missing people altogether, the family members were the ones that were going out and getting CCTV footage and you know, piling it together and putting cases together and bringing cases to lawyers and police and saying, no, we like know what happened to our, our loved one. We have this footage. We have this information. We've interviewed witnesses. And even in those cases, police were not taking them seriously and not even filing report. And when you're dealing with something like the Crow Nation mm -hmm. out in Montana or any of the other uh, reservations or Bureau of Indian Affairs areas, uh, it's a different beast anyway, because it is it's directly under government control, but they're also self-sustained control underneath that umbrella. Kind of explain that dynamic, sure. because even though it's there's a universal thing with the police there, even how the policing and the judicial system inside the tribes is a little bit different. So just explain the, the ecosystem that's working in, because I don't think people really realize that this is similar and parallel, but it's not exactly the same. Sure. So. There's no real easy answer to this. Each tribe has their own agreement with the federal government. The Crow tribe has is you know a fully sovereign entity, much like they would be an individual country within our territory, right? So the Crow tribe in 1825 signed a friendship treaty with the US, and it's one of the few friendship treaties that exist like this. And it's pretty much considered like a NATO type agreement of mutual defense. But each tribe has their own relationship in terms of policing. Some have their own police, some have the oversight of the BIA, which is the Bureau of Indian Affairs. But what's really important to, to note, especially in terms of when people go missing, this is where it gets really complicated, right? Because the FBI has jurisdiction if someone is murdered on, on, a, res, on a tribal land. But if somebody goes missing, you file a local missing persons report, either with the tribe or your local police or the BIA, depending on how your specific policing structure is set up. And then the BIA or, or whoever, whichever policing entity you're reporting to um, says, okay, well, it's a missing person. We're going to investigate uh, if they went missing on Try, if they were last seen on tribal land, you know, that's a BIA thing. But if they were last seen in a city or the local city, um, you know, and Crow is right by Billings, uh, then it's a, it's a Billings police issue. But they can say, well, it's a member of a sovereign nation. And so that's not really our jurisdiction. There's a lot of can kicking is what happens. So one of the things to note, though, is that the Major Crimes Act, which was passed in 1885, it gave jurisdiction to the federal courts, like exclusive of the states, like the states have no say, over Native Americans who commit certain offenses. It doesn't matter if the victim is a Native American or not. 
And those offenses are, you know, murder, manslaughter, rape, assault with intent to kill, burglary, and a couple of others. And so before that, any crimes committed by a Native American against other Native Americans were tried in tribal court. And a lot of um, indigenous leaders today, especially the ones I spoke to in the Crow tribe, say that that act, that Major Crimes Act of 1885, is really what just started everything kind of sliding downhill. Because there, in addition to who goes missing and where, there's that issue of, well, who's the perpetrator? Where do they live? What is their jurisdiction? Are they native or non-native? And how does that all play out? And so in too many cases, people are just not investigating. If they do find the perpetrator and bring them to court, the courts are either tossing the cases out or giving really lenient sentences, if at all. I mean, it's really just horrific that there's not only the tragedy of losing this person that you love, but also that there's no, there's often no justice for it. The term you use in your piece um, was disempowering empowerment. Um, yes. It almost sounds buzzwordy, but as soon as you think about it, you're just like, oh, that's just a, it's almost a gutting term. But what did you mean by that? And, and how does that apply to these folks? Because when you talk about it sliding downhill, yeah. uh, again, like you said before, things don't happen in a vacuum. I always say things never happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Um, that disempowered empowerment came directly from the government and how they set all this up. Yeah, so exactly. So one of the things that law enforcement and again, I'm using that as a very blanket term to apply to all non-tribal policing, okay? Um, but one of the blanket terms they say is, oh, well, they're an adult. They just they just left. They just didn't like the res... And this is where the a really dark kind of classism, racism, elitism comes in of, well, living on the reservation must be so awful that they just walked off. They just left and they didn't tell anybody. And in the Crow tribe in particular, they're very close-knit. I was really moved. One of the things that they were sharing with me was that they have this process in the Crow tribe where you're adopted, right? So, you know, as someone who lost both her parents um, in life, if I was a member of the Crow tribe, I would have new parents. I, it didn't matter if I was 10 years old or 50 years old. I would now have elders in the tribe that would take me and make me part of their family. And that would go for aunties and uncles and nieces and nephews and cousins. And so you're never left on your own. You're never isolated. And so one of the things one of the leaders was telling me, it was like, look, if you like have a fight with your mom, it you don't run away. Like you don't, you know, take whatever $5 you have in your pocket and try to like hitch to Seattle. Like that's just ridiculous. You go up the street on the reservation to like your grandma's house. You don't just vanish. And so for law enforcement to just keep saying like, oh, well, they're an adult, they just left, was so inherently disrespecting the culture and showing a fundamental lack of understanding of this people that they were supposed to be policing and helping and servicing. It was such a slap in the face to say, hey, we've lost somebody. And, and this is so widespread on the, on the Crow Reservation and their neighboring Cheyenne Reservation that every person in the tribe has someone that has gone missing. That to me was wow. what just really, it is not one or two people, right? It is every single person is impacted by this. There is no person that is left untouched 
by this void, this void of waking up and having someone that you love just be gone without a trace, without a question, without any support, without anybody, you know, outside of your community trying to help them find, without any media attention, without any TikToks, without any Twitter streams, without any of that, without CNN flying in, you know, and doing nothing against CNN, but like, and doing vans and, and whatever, um, they're just gone. And that I, as someone who has lost many people in my life, the idea that someone would vanish or be gone from your life and you don't have that information, right? You don't know if they're hurt, lost, um, being kept, being harmed, if they're, they're dead. I mean, one of the things that somebody said to me was every time a body is found, everybody holds their breath because you know the crow tribe is this vast territory and folks that are east of the mississippi or live in cities really cannot fathom how expansive these territories are i mean they're just absolutely absolutely massive um crow is 2.2 million acres and has a population of fewer than 8,000 people living on the reservation it is on this huge empty stretch of Interstate 90 that goes through, I mean, I've driven it in the morning and in the night and the day, and there is nothing there as far as the eye can see. You can, and you're on a major like thoroughfare in the United States and you, there are no buildings, there are no gas stations, there are no street signs, there's no traffic lights, there's just nothing. It's as far as you can see, it's nothing. And the fact that people are going regularly going missing and on it just this regular basis. I mean, it, it's continual and there's no answers or there's in some cases there were alleged cover-ups um, in some cases there've been alleged corruption of the local police in some cases of uh, the non-tribal police. Um, in some cases there have been, you know, accusations that BIA would rather sit on their, you know, sit on their chairs in their Billings office than go out in the middle of the night in Montana in the winter to try to take a statement on a missing person. I mean, it, there's complicated issues around just the geography and the landscape of the of this of this territory, but it's all of the other interwoven challenges that have been designed to set up to really disenfranchise and disempower these tribes is, is really just appalling, going back hundreds of years since the U.S.'s founding. You talked about how the type of investigating journalism you do, you get rather immersed in your subject and you go there and you live there. Yeah. Talk about your responsibility, because when, when you build a relationship with a subject like you do for these pieces, um, you these people have to let you in and they start to trust you, especially people with these kind of traumas. Um, what is your responsibility as a journalist? Because we, we hear a lot about journalistic integrity and we, we beat it around with things like politics and culture. But you're in these people's homes and then when you go to print your story or whatever, you know, you, you carry responsibility because you've kind of given them their word that you're going to portray them a certain way. Talk, talk about that part of the process because a lot of people may not be familiar with how a journalist deals with something like that. Yeah. Um, so I will say that this story came to me 
I didn't seek it out. Most of my big investigations have found me and I tend to take that as a, you know, sign of some sort that I'm the person that needs to, you know, do this story. And so I had been living overseas and I had been covering Europe's economic crisis. And when that became the migration crisis, I was covering that. And then when I moved back to the States, I started covering youth incarceration. And I did a whole series on, oh my goodness, that's that series still kills me, but um, solitary confinement for children in youth detention centers and the psychological impact of that and lack of education and what it's like to being educated in youth incarceration and youth detention centers. And, and so I was doing this whole series for about kids in the U.S. being incarcerated and, and the ridiculous reasons why and the law enforcement kind of apparatus that's around caging children in this country. And I was on the board of the press club at the time, the National Press Club in DC, and someone that I knew through the club came to me and sat me down and he said, listen, I've got a friend coming to town. He's got a leader, you know, he's a leader of the Crow tribe in Montana. His sister has gone missing and he can't get any, like any help at all. Can you just talk to him? And I said, listen, I don't, I don't cover indigenous affairs. I don't really like, I'll talk to him. Of course I'll meet with him. Sure. Um, as his courtesy, but I, I don't know what I can do here. Like I'm a freelancer. I, I don't know journalists. I don't know editors in this beat. And as a freelancer, when you, when I take on a story or when I agree to a story because a source comes to me, I don't necessarily get editors that call me and commission me pieces. It happens sometimes, but that's not the way this, the world, my world works. What typically happens is I'll say I've, a source comes to me and says, I've got a story. And I'll say, okay, hold that story. Tell me a little bit about it. I'm going to go reach out to every editor I know at every single publication. And hopefully one of them will say, yes, we'll run that story, write it, we'll pay you and we'll run it. And that can, that process takes, I mean, months, if not years. Right. So I didn't, I was really invested in the kids um, reporting and I didn't really want to dive into anything else. And I don't have you know, sources or editors that would cover this. And so, and so I thought, okay, I'll just, you know, I'll meet with him. And at some point, maybe it'll turn into a story down the line, or I can fold it into another story. And so I, and this was CJ, who I talk about at length in the, in the article that you mentioned. And so I, you know, we sat in the little conference room at the press club and had like a 15 minute thing. And he was like, Oh, yeah, okay, my sister's gone missing. I'm like, that's really sorry. You know, I'm really sorry about that. And it's really terrible. And he's like, and my brother had also had a police encounter that resulted in his death. And I was like, oh my God, that's like, how much bad fortune can one family have? This is really terrible. And he's like, no, you don't understand. And then he started to tell me about this epidemic and I was completely ignorant of it. I had no concept. I had no idea, you know, aside from what you learn in school about native affairs, which let's be honest, is very one-sided. <laughs> it is very limited and told under this idea of like, America conquered the tribes, which is terrible. I really had very little interaction. And so he said, okay, well, you should come out to Montana. And I didn't realize with that invitation, I realized it later, but that it is very unusual for a non-tribal person to be invited to the tribe in that way. And so I said, okay, well, you know, I'm working on this other story. Um, I'm wrapping up, I think I had a piece in the Washington Post about a police captain in Philadelphia that was trying to stop getting kids arrested. Because in Philadelphia, they were arresting children as young as 10 and like traumatizing them for life. So I was doing that story and I was like, I'll get back to you. 
And I started reaching out to news outlets and, you know, a bunch of places were like, oh yeah. And I was like, listen, like people are disappearing. Like, how is this happening in this country? In this age of social media, in the age of police reform, in this age of mass surveillance, I mean, I can't walk down my street without knowing that I have 12 different, you know, different entities, surveillance cameras following me, right? Like, how is this happening? And so I started digging into the how is this happening piece of it and pitched a couple editors and I had one magazine finally say, yes, we'll do it, go to the story. Um, and I should point out that I paid for it out of pocket. Um, it went out to Montana for two weeks, interviewed everybody from the attorney general to local police to tribal members. I had a strange interaction with local police there too. So I know that they were aware that I was in town. Um, I was followed places. I spent two weeks out there, wow. came, came back and was like, okay, so now I have the field piece. I have sat there with people while they told me their stories of missing people and cried. I mean, the, the question of responsibility and integrity, right? When someone, when someone who is not part of your community trusts you, who doesn't know you, right? And CJ opened lots of doors when you're not part of a closed community and you're invited in and doors open everywhere and they open everywhere and they are vulnerable and they are raw and they are crying in front of you and tearing up as they're telling you about the last time they saw their loved one or the last phone call they had, or in one case, how they were you know, had just gone to get Christmas presents and then they never came home for Christmas. I mean, you carry that. And if you don't carry that with you, I don't think you deserve to be in this line of work. I carried that with me. And I went back and I wrote the story and the news outlet was like, oh, we didn't think this is what the story was gonna be. We thought you were gonna tell us that white supremacists were murdering native women. And that's why they all went missing. And I'm like, well, like, that's, that's not the story that I wrote. The story is there's all these fundamental gaps in policing and we are failing this tribe as a country and the laws have been built to fail this tribe as a country. And that's the story. And it was originally like a 10,000 word piece that became a 3000 word piece. And, and they're like, well, we don't want it. I was like, okay, so now I have to, I have to go find a place for the story now. I, Andrew, every connection I had ever cultivated in my life got an email from me, got a phone call. I was trying to give this story away. I could not, I, was, I, I would not have taken, I was thousands of dollars out of pocket at this point. I would not have taken any money. I just wanted to get it out into the world. I thought it was so important. I thought, how can it be that all of these people are vanishing and nobody cares? And here I am, I have this story for you. I, it's, I have photographs, it's been fact-checked, it's web ready, it's a packaged piece ready to go. I'm giving it to you for free. I mean, I reached out to Newsweek, I reached out to CNN, I reached out to the New York Times, I reached out to the LA Times, I reached out to the Seattle Times, I reached out to every, favor I could have called in, every person that knew somebody. Um, and I, you know, that's, as a freelancer, I have a pretty decent contact roster. 
I was trying to give this away. I honestly think this was, and a lot of people were saying, oh, we'll read the story, that's great. Send it to us and we'll consider it. And they read it and they came back to me and said, no. I honestly think this was the most read story before it was ever published within our industry that year because everybody was reading it and nobody was taking it. And then I finally found a second outlet to run it. Um, and I worked with an amazing editor. I still love that editor and I don't wanna name the outlet because I, it, the, I don't want to put her in an awkward position. We went through fact checking. We went through legal. Again, same thing. We went through fact checking. We went through legal. It was months. It was ready to go. They didn't use my photos. They grabbed some photos that I thought were actually like really insensitive and borderline racist and were grabbing some stock photos of tribes that were not Crow and stereotypical imagery of non-Crow tribes people in native dress. And I'm like, well, this story isn't about that. <laughs> this, these are not Crow members and right. you can't just substitute in, you know, like it was a mess. And then they had it and they're like, okay, we, I fought them and it took months and we finally had a story that was ready to go. And then they got a new editor in chief and the new editor in chief came from more of a pop it, clickbait style of I don't want to say reporting because I don't necessarily think that's reporting, but um, of writing. And so I was, her job is basically the editor in chief is just to be like, okay, yeah, it's, it's fine. You've gone through legal. We've had, you know, all of this. And instead she went in and, and we were in a shared Google drive. And so I'm watching in real time that she was just going in and rewriting it. And in the act of rewriting it, she was putting in racist stereotypes. She was taking out things. She was changing things so that it was no longer factually accurate. And to your question of integrity, this was, these were stories that had been entrusted to me. And I was then entrusting it to this outlet and this outlet was not worthy of that trust. And so I got to a point where I pulled it. And so now we're a year on, a year and a half on, it still doesn't have a home. These stories still haven't been told. I'm literally dreaming of these missing people every night. I had seen their photos. I had heard their stories. I think it is fair to say that I was haunted by them. I could not rest until this story. I stopped eating. Um, at one point, I you know stopped working on anything else except this. I moved out of my apartment and moved in with friends. I mean, this story consumed me. And I reached out to CJ. And I said, hey, listen, just a heads up, like I have not, because as far as they know, I just came and visited them and then never did anything, right? They don't know that this right. is happening on my end. And so I reached out to them and said, you know, hey, just a heads up, like I'm still working on this. This is not, I haven't forgotten you. This is still really important. And he said, that's okay. We're used to people not delivering on what they promise. And it just shattered me. I just, in a million pieces, it just absolutely shattered me. And finally found Al Jazeera, which I love writing for Al Jazeera. I've written for them on and off for probably about 10 years now. And got, um, got an editor who immediately got the piece and got what we were trying to do and understood the importance of the story and gave the story the space and the time that it deserved. And of course we had to go through, you know, fact checking again and legal again and, and all of that again, which is totally fair. Um, but at that point, I think close to two years had gone by and, you know, we did some updates. I think I was ultimately paid maybe four or $500. I mean, nothing at this point, it really was not the money that was driving me, 
but the fact that it took that much both on the crow's part and on my part to get this story out there has fundamentally changed me i mean it's really just how would you not care about that how could you not care about that like i can understand in this day and age local reporting you know the budgets are less i know as a freelancer the budgets have shrunk over years i i maybe get if you can say like we can't send a full crew out to montana for a month to do this story like i i understand that but here i was i had done the work i you know i i'm, I'm an experienced journalist i have a history of doing investigations like this handing like gift wrapping and handing this big investigation and saying, I don't, you don't even need to pay me, like just run it. And, and they wouldn't. And that to me, when the Gabby Petito thing happened and when she went missing and all of the coverage, that was the first thing that I thought of was people are still going missing. They're going missing everywhere. And we've set, we've set it up so that it is not, it does not incentivize media outlets to do this kind of reporting. What really triggered my memory of your piece, besides how great it was, because I first read it, I don't know, probably two years ago now, but it was actually a picture in this piece, as great as your writing is, and you're a fantastic writer, uh, and it's a picture you took, and in a, and where we've spent the last two years of media being driven by pictures of protest, from the performative and silly to the very violent and very historically meaningful, the photo of these folks, these tribal folks, protesting on a highway in the middle of nowhere, um, carrying their tribal flags, and there's only a handful of them. There's nowhere anywhere near them. This isn't for attention. There, I mean, this is this is something that, I don't know if you took it with your camera or your phone. It, it, it's, it, it just struck me when I started seeing the Gabby Petito thing, and I remembered that picture. And I'm yeah. like, those. that's not a protest for attention. That's a protest of, we don't know what else to do, but we can do this. And that's how it came across to me for those folks. And it's such a powerful image of there's nothing else they can do except just hold their flag and hold their hand up and march forward. And it was such a striking image. And it kind of brought it back to the Gabby Petito thing of what do you do when you when you have no hope? And you ended your piece in the the piece in Al Jazeera of, you know, you got to give these people some hope. Where do you find hope? And that image those are people just making their own hope marching down the highway in the middle of Montana where there's nobody within 50 miles any direction, is it? Well, so the thing about that that was so fascinating to me is, you know, so we talk about Highway 90, which runs through, and it's the main thoroughfare. It's where all the trucks go, and it's all of that. But, you know, there's a second road outside of Crow. Um, there's 87, and then it's it's a two-lane highway, and a lot of the trucks, and it, goes, it turns into 212. And so a lot of the trucks kind of, do that road, right? Um, because it's, there's not, you know, state troopers waiting on either end of Crow Tribe, you kind of can do your thing, but it's a, it's a narrow two lane highway. And people have gone missing on that highway, and they've been killed on that highway. And so these protesters, these marchers had, you know, three or four of them and a, a follow truck with a porta potty, and then another follow truck with like the kids and the, you know, coolers and that sort of thing. And they're 
they had a BIA officer who was a member of the Crow tribe and they marched through Crow ter- through Cheyenne territory, which is their neighboring tribe to Crow. And Cheyenne and Crow have, you know, their history, right? At neighboring tribes with shared borders often do, but they have the same issue. And so they, they joined together to do, to do this march. But the thing that really just struck me was people had to slow down and go around them because there is, there was plenty of traffic. There's, you know, plenty of cars and trucks and most people were respectful. Most people, um, you know, honked their support. A couple were jerks that you'll have anywhere. Right. But there were these two motorcyclists and, you know, white men of a certain age, probably in their sixties, it's Memorial day weekend. I think they were on their way to Sturgis and they were taking this road and they saw us and they pulled off up ahead and they stopped and they were basically just gawking, right? This was a tourist attraction for them. This was one more thing that they were going to see on their trip and that they were going to tell their friends about. And they basically stopped and waited at this little cutout on the side of the road for the parade, the protesters to catch up with them. And when we all joined them, I was incredibly uncomfortable. I was very aware that those men were looking for a spectacle, that they didn't know anything about these, this tribe. They didn't know anything about these missing women. They didn't really care. They just saw some really cool people with some cool flags. And so I was cringing. I was just, you know, and the reason the protesters stopped at that spot was because that was a spot in the little pull off on the side of the road where one of the bodies of one of the members of their tribes had been found years ago. And so they stopped at this spot for a moment of prayer and reflection and quiet. And this was a sacred space for them. And here are these two motorcycle guys just gawking at them. And rather than being offended and rather than being, you know, asking them to move along, they took the time, they explained to them what was going on. Then they invited them into their prayer circle. And after praying for the remains and to be found of all the missing, either alive or not, and praying for the souls of the, the people that had passed away, which itself is incredibly moving, and I was very choked up. They then took a moment to pray for the safety of these two men on their journey. And I thought, God, that is grace. That is, I, that is humility and kindness and graciousness that I don't know that I would have in that situation. But they saw those two men as emissaries. They were gawking and they were tourists. But you know what? Those were two more people that were going to go out into the world and say, members of the Crow and Cheyenne tribes are going missing. And you should know about that. And so they took that opportunity as a gift and they took it as a means to continue to share their message. So that to me, when you talk about the integrity of reporting, that's this those are the things that I draw inspiration from, right? Is it's very easy in journalism to get caught up in the ego and the byline and the money, which there's not much unless you're, you know, at the, like the 10% of our field, but it's very easy to kind of track those things or to go after those things or to think that those are the things that show that you've been successful. I look at my body of work and I'm really proud of some of the stories that I've done. And at the end of the day, can I say I did this story justice? I think that there is no justice to the story. Um, the fact that 
it's still happening. The fact that it's not covered everywhere means there's no justice to this story. I could spend the rest of my life writing about this story and there would still not be justice. I mean, until every single member is found and accounted for and every single perpetrator is, you know, held to account and every person that does anything against any indigenous person in this country and in countries around the world is held to account. I mean, that's justice. And I don't know that we'll have that. But at the end of the day, there was a story that I feel like I did my small part to get out into the world. And the fact that you know about it and the fact that we're talking about it, I have to take some sort of grace from that. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. That'll do it for Herd Tell. Did it a little different today, but that's important. Look, one of the things we do, if we're going to turn down the noise of the news is we can't just hit stories and move away from them. We need to reflect. We need to review. So a year later, after all those viral stories are gone, it's good to go back and reflect on it. See what we got right. See what we got wrong. Do a little self-adjustment. That's the grown folk way of doing these cultural stories, these political stories, these breaking news stories. It's what we're always going to try to do here We'd love to hear feedback from you. Heard tell show at gmail.com. Heard tell show on the Twitter. Also comments and reviews in any of the platforms that you're watching or listening to the program. We do see those. Love to interact with you on those. We'd love to hear from you because if you ain't listening and watching, we ain't got anybody to talk to. This is a partnership. And we appreciate you very much for however it is you spend your time with us. We always want to respect it. We never want to waste your time. So we bring you the stories that matter like this one that we cover today with the great Molly McCluskey. Till we see you again on Herd Tell, wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world. We hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. We hope this story makes you hug your loved ones just a little bit more. We'll talk to you about it next time on more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support. The new Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL.